You're listening to The Hold Fast Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of the Hold Fast Podcast. I am David Brandau, and today, as we continue the series that I've titled The Bible, The Book, The Myth, The Legend, I specifically want to answer whether or not the Bible has errors. Now, I want to give you a, a warning here. This is a long episode, so... If at any point you feel overwhelmed, there's too much information for you, I would encourage you to pause the episode, come back to it later, come back when your mind is refreshed, if you have questions, if you want to look up these verses and and some of these issues yourself, I would encourage you to do that, but don't feel that you have to listen to this entire thing in one sitting. Now first, I want to explain why this series is essential. Why pick the Bible as a starting point for the podcast? When I was beginning to outline season one, I had this whole plan I worked up. I was going to dive right into biblical truths, rarely heard or taught in churches, but are essential to our relationship with Christ. But I began thinking, what makes what I say different from what another person says? If two people read the same Bible, but come up with two different ideas, contradicting each other. Who says which person interprets the Bible correctly? And if you remember, I talked about the need for the truth in my first episode. Not a personal truth, not my truth or your truth, but the actual truth. We live in a society today where everybody has their own truth and they're being told to live it. But without some kind of authority that defines the truth, there really can't be truth. Without an authority, truth is whatever you feel the truth is. We have people whose truth defies logic and common sense. We have people whose truth can't define what a man or a woman is. We have people whose truth can't distinguish between moral and immoral behavior. We have people whose truth changes daily based on how they feel. And I don't expect anything else from unbelievers. My problem is when the truth is twisted and manipulated by so-called Christians. Some people claim to be of the household of faith, but their truth is constantly changing. And if you really get down to why It's because Jesus is not their Lord. They never really gave up control of their life to him. They never really picked up their cross, gave up their own life, and followed him. Sure, you may see them in church on Sunday. 
You may see them leading worship. You may see them preaching, praying, or prophesying. But I'm going to tell you right now, you won't find a true believer who doesn't feel remorse when they fall. You won't find a true believer who cares more about their reputation than whether or not they are living a life pleasing to God. A genuine Christian does all that they do for one person, and it's not themselves. Genuine and fake believers differ in their action when confronted with the truth. And to test the genuineness of a person's faith, to determine whether or not they are conforming to the truth, we have to have an authority of truth. We have to be able to precisely define what the truth is. For most Christians, and really it should be all Christians, the ultimate authority on the truth is the Bible. So my purpose in doing this series is to define what the Bible actually is. For me to do that, I had to start at the beginning. I had to explain the Bible as the Word of God. For the Bible to be the authority of truth, we must understand it is true. It has to be a faithful, complete, inerrant representation of what the living God said and is saying. If it's not, there is no way for anyone to determine what is acceptable or unacceptable to God. And hopefully throughout this series, I've shown that so far. Last episode, I talked about the inspiration of the Bible. And I'm sure I'm going to go over it again in a future episode. But today, I want to focus on the infallibility of the Bible. The Bible does not lead to error. It doesn't lead you to wrong conclusions or false doctrines. The Bible also doesn't contain mistakes. Every word, every sentence, every thought is perfect. And before someone tries to fact check me on that, I am not talking about the version of the Bible you hold in your hand right now. I can go to a Gideon's Bible and pull up spelling errors. I can pick up three random translations and show you the different versions depending on which manuscript was used and how scholars determined to translate a specific word. I'm talking about the original manuscripts. But even taking translation issues into account, if you let the Bible speak as God intended, even then it cannot lead you to error and it contains no errors. It is trustworthy. And if we're looking to read the acts of a living God, I would expect there to be evidence of life. The proofs, the evidence are the miracles the Bible describes, and in that context, they are believable. For every Christian, the most substantial and significant support for the authority and inspiration of the Bible is the testimony of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the most reliable witness to the authenticity of Scripture, the one who died for us, and more importantly, the one who rose for us. There is a false belief that is slowly creeping its way into the church today that claims the Bible contains errors. And to be completely open and honest, I was one of those people who believed that because men were involved with the writing and translating, there was room for errors. And this is what led me down the road of analyzing what I believe. So I returned to the basics, 
the foundation of my faith. And at the very foundation is an experience with the living God. And because of that relationship, because it is real to me, then the Bible, the works, acts, and deeds of that God are true. Everything in Christianity must be based on Scripture, because again, the Scriptures are the authority. And if we are to go through the Bible and pick and choose what's true and what's not, who is judging that? What standard, if not the Bible itself, is used to evaluate whether it is true? In my mind, people must be taken out of that equation. If people are allowed to decide what is true in the Bible and what is not, then anything is whatever we decide it is. And just like society today, that can change daily based on how we feel. In the past, the issue of authenticity and accuracy was a debate between skeptics and Christians. Skeptics would challenge the truth of the Bible and question potential errors. Today, Christians debate each other over the same issue. We have to defend our beliefs about the Bible from both the skeptics and other Christians. But when you get down to the heart of the matter, it's not just about protecting a book. In the last episode, I spoke about what Jesus believed about Scripture. I showed you several examples where Jesus believed Scripture was the Word of God. That is what he believed. And if we accept the view the Bible is fallible, if we accept errors and parts that aren't true, then we are challenging the integrity of Jesus himself. And if you believe Jesus was the pure, sinless Son of God who died for you, then you can only accept the Bible is what Jesus believed. Perfect. You cannot believe Jesus didn't know there were errors. Otherwise, he isn't God. You cannot believe Jesus knew there were errors and covered them up because then he isn't pure. So if you accept a perfect Christ, the son of a perfect God, you have no leg to stand on if the scriptures are his words. So to attack the idea that the scriptures are inerrant, without contradiction, and inspired, Skeptics will generally focus on three areas. First, they'll claim the Bible is not inspired because some writers in places will say it's not inspired. In the first passage, most skeptics will point out to justify their position is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, where Paul writes, But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. And their argument here is Paul is writing scripture without inspiration. Paul says, I'm not commanding you to do something. I'm allowing you to do something. And what Paul is talking about in this portion is marriage. If you go back to verse 2, Paul says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And if Paul had stopped writing right there, then the Bible, the word of God, would be everybody needs to be married. 
if Paul had stopped right there, if you're single, you're living in sin. But Paul didn't stop there. He continues to verse 6, where marriage is permitted but not commanded. And Paul continues that thought in verses 7 through 9, where he says, For I wish that all men were even as myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widow, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul is saying he wishes everyone were as he was, unmarried. This was an advantage to Paul in his pursuit of Christ. And the topic Paul is writing about here is whether or not people should be forced to be single. The answer is no. Don't force people to be single. Why? Because some people, myself included, will end up being so distracted by a need and a desire that can only be fulfilled by a spouse. But at the same time, Paul is also saying some people don't have those needs or desires. And I've known people who are like this. So don't force those people to get married. But notice what this verse doesn't say. This verse speaks nothing of inspiration. Where in there does Paul say he's not expressing God's thoughts? Another couple of verses skeptics use from this same portion is verses 10 through 12, where Paul says, Now to the married I command. Yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. So the claim here in this particular passage is in one part, Paul says, the Lord commands, but in another, he says, I say, not the Lord. The claim is Paul is just giving his opinion. Because it's just his opinion, it's not binding on the believer. And if Paul makes the disclaimer here that he's speaking and not God, then how do we know there aren't other places where Paul is just giving his opinion? Now, for me, the first thing I always look at when someone challenges the Bible is what's in it for them. How does this portion of Scripture benefit them if it's just Paul's opinion and we can throw it out? An excellent example is the idea of women elders in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 lays out very clearly what is required of someone who leads a church. And one of those requirements is, and I quote, the husband of one wife. A woman cannot be the husband to a wife biblically. But there are churches today that allow women as elders. So how do churches let women be elders if Paul clearly outlines the requirement is for men and only men. All you have to do 
is claim those requirements are Paul's opinions. They're not binding because they're not God saying it. Now, if we suppose 1 Corinthians contains Paul's opinions, then we must make room for Paul's opinions throughout his writings. So what's in it for churches to allow 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 to be Paul's opinion? What's in it for them? Now, I won't claim to know what's in the minds of other people, but the claim can be made that churches adopt political and social movements to make themselves more attractive or inclusive. In and of itself, that's not a bad thing. But if you're willing to bend the word of God to gain a few members in your church, are you actually preaching the word of God? Are you even a church of God if you disobey his word? But let's get back to 1 Corinthians. In verse 10, Paul writes, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. And if you study this portion of scripture out, what you're actually going to see is Paul is saying, To those who are married, here are the words of the Lord. And Paul references a statement Jesus made in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32, where Jesus says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman, who is divorced, commits adultery. So Paul is saying he's not presenting anything in 1 Corinthians that's new. Jesus already said it. Paul is just repeating what Jesus already commanded. Now in verse 12, Paul writes, But to the rest I, not the Lord, say. And here Paul is continuing not by saying what he is writing is not inspired. He's just no longer referencing what Jesus said. Jesus already commanded you that marriage is to be permanent. Divorce was only permitted for adultery. Now I, Paul, add to what Jesus said. Paul is not minimizing his teaching compared to Christ. He's actually putting them on the same level. Jesus exempted divorce on the grounds of adultery. Paul added the exemption of an unbeliever who will not live with a believer who wants out of that relationship. Paul is making the exemption that a believer is not bound to an unbeliever. So if you're a Christian and there's no way your partner will ever come to Christ and they're making your life miserable, you should be separated. But if you're a believer and they're willing to live with you, stay with them. And just like I said earlier, what's the benefit of throwing out this portion of the Bible? What's the benefit to claim that these were Paul's words and not God's words? This particular portion of scripture doesn't give much wiggle room for Christians to divorce. Paul says nothing about divorcing because you're not happy. Jesus says nothing about divorcing if the fires of passion burn out. The only exceptions 
are adultery and an unbelieving spouse who will not live with you. And I want to make one thing crystal clear. Abuse in any form is not your partner living with you. Now, another verse we can look at where people could say Paul is just giving his opinion is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25, where Paul writes, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. And again, we have a situation where Paul is saying, Jesus didn't say anything about this topic, but Paul gives judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. This is not Paul's opinion. This is the Spirit of God speaking through Paul. And this is clearly evidenced at the end of the chapter in verse 40, where Paul writes, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. So the idea that Paul wrote his own opinions is not only false, it's actually a way people twist the word of God to fit what they want. They twist the words of Paul, as Peter wrote, to suit their own worldview and political and social leanings and force the scriptures to fit their beliefs instead of changing their beliefs to fit the scriptures. So that's the first area. Critics of the Bible generally try to attack the inspiration. The second prominent area critics challenge is the transmission. And by that, I mean, how can any document written thousands of years ago be subjected to countless translations and innumerable copies be accurate to the original? That's the claim. And this was a view I held. How do I know what I read now is anything close to what the original said? Now, from personal experience, most people who question the transmission do very little research to support their claim. I allowed translation and transmission errors to exist because people make mistakes. I never questioned the authenticity of the Bible being the Word of God but I left room for the copies of copies of copies to be different. And sometimes, if there are enough errors, the meaning can change. The book of the Bible itself does not change the God I personally experienced. It only changes the documentation of events. So how can we trust the transmission of the Bible? Well, to answer that question first, you need to know a little bit of how we got it. The Bible was initially written by the original writers or people transcribing their words. Now, after these original manuscripts are written, a process of copying begins. Scribes would then use the original to make copies. Now, throughout all the many thousands of years, throughout all the copying, most biblical scholars today will tell you the Bible you read today is almost identical to the original. Now, how do they know that? 
how can we trust them? The Bible has more manuscript evidence than any other ancient book in existence. Scrolls, parchment, and paper copies of the Bible have been found all over the world. Despite the years separating them, the scribes who copied them, and the different cultures they came from, they are nearly identical. Out of the 13,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament we currently have, all written in different periods and from all different people, they all agree with each other. For the manuscripts of the Old Testament, only 1 in 1,508 words have any configuration that changes between them. Of all the actual errors in all the manuscripts, 99% are spelling errors. For the Old Testament, a group of scribes gave us the Masoretic text beginning in 500 AD. We have the Septuagint, the Greek translation quoted frequently by the writer of Hebrews. We also have the Latin Vulgate, commissioned in 382 AD. We have the Samaritan Pentateuch, written in 122 BC or earlier. We have the Syriac manuscripts and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what's interesting about the Dead Sea Scrolls is they date back to the 400-year period between when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins. The Dead Sea Scrolls contain nearly the entire Old Testament. And what's also interesting is the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls are almost identical, even though there are eight or nine hundred years between them. Scholars will tell you the minute discrepancies between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic text are so minor that they're not worthy of any significance. Now, all of this goes to show if God is who we believe he is and he spoke to men to write this book, then he most certainly can use men to take care of it and he's more than capable of guiding the hands and the eyes of those copying it. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some manuscripts that are very, very wrong. But they are so few and far between. And since the majority of the manuscripts we have agree, those are the manuscripts the Bible you read today is based on. So if anyone comes to you and says there's a problem with transmission, I'm telling you, you have a mountain of manuscripts that says differently. Now the third and the final main point that I'm going to talk about today that people use to criticize the Bible is what is claimed as legitimate errors or mistakes. Before I get into that, let me tell you a little story. In 1930, an evangelist named Paul Rader offered $1,000 to anybody who could prove the Bible contradicts itself. And he made the rules pretty open-ended. He said, if you can find any proof, anything in history, geology, archaeology, astronomy, physics, chemistry, ethnology, anything, I will give you a thousand dollars. Now, in 1930, a thousand dollars was a pretty good chunk of change. 
And if the Bible is so filled with contradictions, errors, and mistakes as the skeptics claim, that should be a pretty quick payday, right? Nobody ever claimed the money. Now, there are definite challenges in the Bible. But to say something is hard, therefore it's made up, is like saying because you can't win a game means the game is rigged. And I do this all the time at my kids' soccer games. I'll sit there sometimes and I'll start questioning the ref's decisions. Eventually, if I talk loud enough or say enough, I'll get the look from my wife. Or she'll give me one of those elbows to the ribs. But the truth is, I don't know all the rules of soccer. I don't care enough to learn all the rules of soccer. But I do have a vested interest in my kids winning. But why would God allow challenges in the Bible if they're not actually legitimate mistakes or errors? Why wouldn't he just make it easy? Why do Matthew and Luke give two different genealogies for Christ? I've talked about the writers agreeing with each other, but why is it so challenging sometimes to see the harmony? Let me ask you a question. If you were going to fake a book that claimed to be written by an eternal God and you wanted many different writers to write it, you would like them to match every word, thought, and concept as much as possible, right? So the fact that we have some challenges with harmony proves these guys weren't making it all up. If there wasn't a guiding inspiration, none of the writers should correlate to each other at all. So the reason for some of the challenges is to prove there wasn't collusion. Another reason for the challenges, as modern readers were forced to study to fully understand the culture the writers lived in. We have to remember the Bible is not a modern book. We don't understand the culture, the geography, the history of the times, and the language. The Hebrew used by the biblical writers is not the same Hebrew spoken today. So sometimes it takes quite a bit of study to fully comprehend what the Bible is saying. Another challenge is caused by historical events being condensed into a small number of verses. I can tell you the story of the American Revolution. I can give you every detail. I can tell you who did what or who went where. Or I can summarize it and tell you we fought a war with the British and George Washington won us our independence. There's a lot left out in the summary, but it's still true, right? So context is important, but sometimes we don't get that in the Bible. And personally, I think it's good the Bible isn't a history book. It's a book to show us who God is, not what history was. There are historical elements that provide supporting evidence to the integrity of the Bible. But the primary purpose of the Bible is not history. So any perceived error brought forward by those who try to discredit the Bible has proved to be due to a lack of fully understanding the cultures the Bible was written in, the languages it was written in, 
the geographical locations where it was written, the history leading up to its writing, and the customs of the times it was written in. And that statement right there is simply giving some skeptics a way out of the argument. I'm giving them the excuse of ignorance there. In the last episode, I talked about the hostility those who live in the flesh have toward God. And I would say some skeptics aren't ignorant. They're hostile. They're hostile because if God is proven to be real, they cannot live their life their own way without repercussions. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter says this about Paul in his epistles. Peter says, Paul is speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. There is a difference between those who are ignorant of the truth and those who twist the truth. And really it comes down to why. What's in it for you to disbelieve? But to get back to my earlier point, there are gaps in our understanding surrounding the periods in which the Bible was initially written. And I want to show you some of those examples. Maybe you've had some of these questions yourself. Let's look at the first man and woman of the Bible, Adam and Eve. Now, I think we can say we know where Cain and Abel came from in that family unit, right? But if the Bible documents that the beginning of mankind came from a single family and the children mentioned are male, who did Cain marry? The answer is actually pretty simple but it challenges our modern view of what's right and wrong. The simple answer is Cain married someone closely related to him. He could have married a sister, it could have been a niece, or someone further down the line, a great niece possibly, but it was someone of his own blood. Genesis chapter 5, verses 3 through 5 says, and Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. So Adam lived a total of 930 years. And the Bible says he had both sons and daughters. Now, 930 years is a long time. Many, many children could be born in that time, and not just the children of Adam, but the children, the children of children, and the children of children of children. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us, according to Jewish tradition, Adam had 33 sons and 23 daughters. And honestly, we don't know when Cain killed Abel. We don't know how old he was. We don't know exactly where he went to. But one scholar calculated that in that 930 years described in the Bible, Cain could have had 
35,000 women to choose from. And by the time of his death, the world population was 120,000. Now today, we see that type of intermarriage as immoral. That concept didn't come into our thinking until later. Now, is this a challenge for us to understand? Absolutely. But is it an error? No. Another challenging portion of scripture, and one that is often used to discredit the inspiration of the Bible, is Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 through 14, which say, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he, Joshua, said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that before it or after it, The Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Now the challenge for this particular passage is, if God inspired the writing of the Bible, why is the science wrong? Joshua claims the sun stood still. But the sun doesn't rotate around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun. But the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. Earth revolves around the sun. So, why didn't Joshua say the world stood still? And again, you have two types of people who ask this question. You have the genuinely curious, and then you have the skeptic who believes the Bible is wrong. So, why didn't Joshua say the earth stood still? Well, let me ask you a question. When you go out in the early morning, Do you say you're going to go out and watch the sunrise or you're going to go watch the earth rotate? I have never once heard someone claim the earth's rotation is romantic, but I have heard of a romantic sunset. You see, the Bible was written from a human's point of view. Joshua said the sun stood still because that's what it looked like. Is that a challenge to understand? Sure. But again, it's not an error. Let's look at another example. In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 14, it says, Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lashish, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Now this passage describes a historical event. The king of Judah, Hezekiah, was forced to pay tribute to the Assyrian king Sennacherib. And for this example, we have archaeological evidence from the Assyrian point of view. But the Bible says Hezekiah paid 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. 
the archaeological evidence from the Assyrian record says Hezekiah paid 800 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Now, when this was discovered, most people didn't question the authenticity of the archaeological evidence. In their minds, there was no way the scribe made an error. They immediately jumped to the conclusion that the Bible was wrong. But here's the issue. As archaeologists learned more about the Assyrian kingdom, they discovered Judah and Assyria used the same standard for measuring gold, but different standards for measuring silver. If Assyria said 30 talents of gold, then that would directly match up to Judah's measurement of 30 talents of gold. But when Assyria said 800 talents of silver, when you use the Judean weights for measuring silver, it was exactly 300 talents of silver. So again, there isn't a contradiction here. You just have two different means of measurement. And you wouldn't know that if you don't investigate and study it. So there's just a couple examples of challenges when it comes to custom language and historical events. But I want to turn very briefly to a challenge of theology. Many people claim the Apostle James's beliefs about salvation directly contradict the Apostle Paul's. And for some of you, this argument may be way deeper than your understanding is now. But it's important to discuss this issue, and it really speaks to a harmony of Scripture that takes more than a casual glance to understand. If James and Paul contradict each other, we are left with the impression that one or the other was not inspired to write their epistle, right? So let's look at each writer's words and see if there actually is a contradiction. Let's look at Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works. The wages are not counted as grace, but debt. Now, when we look at this portion of scripture, we have to understand that Romans chapter four is a continuation of Romans chapter three. And in Romans chapter three, Paul outright says, righteous works do not make you righteous. Belief in God alone is what saved Abraham. Faith and faith alone. Now let's see if what Paul says here contradicts James. James chapter 2 verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? So here we have James also using Abraham as an example. And apparently James sees things differently from Paul. James says Abraham was made righteous, which is what that word justified means, by works. Paul says 
faith alone? Or does he? If you study Paul's letter to the Romans, you'll find Paul refers to Genesis chapter 15. But James, in his letter, refers to Genesis chapter 22. Paul is making his case for salvation when Abraham was called righteous. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. James is making his case for works, visible proof of a redeemed life, when Abraham proved his faith was genuine by sacrificing Isaac. Genesis chapter 22, verse 12. And he, God, said, Do not lay your hand on the lad, or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. When God said, Now I know, that word know means see. Abraham proved he truly believed God was real by what he did, how he lived through visible action. There is no contradiction between Paul and James. Paul says you're saved by faith, and James builds on that and says your salvation is visible by what you do. It takes zero effort to say Jesus is Lord and live your life however you see fit. It's not easy to say Jesus is Lord Take up your cross and show by how you live, Jesus is your Lord, Master and Ruler. Of course, salvation is as easy as belief, but to think the cost isn't control of how you live is unbiblical. Works don't produce salvation. They are evidence of it. A Christian who continues to sin with the idea that God knows my heart is not a Christian if they don't have the visible Outward fruit of salvation. That's what James is adding to Paul. And really, Paul himself talks about the same issue. A good example is the much beloved passage, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Paul there says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but after the Spirit. According to this verse written by Paul, If you are in Christ Jesus, you do not walk or live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So if this verse is true because Paul wrote it, then the opposite is true. Those who are not in or united with Christ, those who walk and live according to the flesh, those who live fulfilling their own will and desire, and not the will of the Holy Spirit, for them there is condemnation. So Paul really says the same thing as James. How you live and what you do prove the genuineness of your salvation. Do you want to know if you're saved? How do you live? What do you do? Do you want to know if somebody is genuinely following Christ? How do they live? What do they do? I can call myself a pilot. I can put on the uniform and cap. I can wear the badge and put that little button on my chest, but if I never fly a plane, I'm not what I claim to be. 
So there's the episode on whether the Bible has errors. The answer is no. Are there challenges? Yes. Does it take thought and study? Yes. Does it take more than just reading to understand everything in it? Yes. But just because we don't fully understand every jot and tittle doesn't mean it's wrong. And it certainly doesn't mean we can't come to know and understand precisely what God wants us to know. And I know this episode is a long one. There's a lot of information here. And again, if you get overwhelmed, I hope you will pause and return to it later. But I owe you a more extended episode for missing a couple of weeks. So if you need a break, I'd suggest you pause now and come back when you're ready, because I want to go a bit further today and talk a little bit about the legend of the Bible. When I first had the idea for this series, I did want to talk about the book. I did want to talk about some of the misconceptions, the myths that some people believe about the Bible. But I also wanted to talk about its legend. Some of the events surrounding how we still have the Bible today are legendary. And I want you to just listen to what I'm about to go over and ask yourself, do you honor the scriptures as the written word of God, or is it just a book to you? So when we talk about the legend of the Bible, one of the first things that we can talk about is its uniqueness. The Uniqueness of the Bible sets it apart from every other religious text. In the sacred writings of the Hindus, you'll discover the moon is over 172,000 miles higher than the sun and shines by its own light. The night is caused by the sun setting behind a mountain thousands of feet high in the earth's center. The world is flat. It's fixed and rests on the back of a bull. The sun moves in a chariot pulled by horses. Birds can fly into space, a demon causes a solar eclipse, and clouds and rain come from the sun. In the Quran, stars are torches protecting people from intruders. God created humans from oven-baked clay. The sun sets in a spring of murky water. There are so many wrong things in the Quran, I won't bore you with reading them all. But if only one of the things mentioned by the Quran, the Hindu texts, the Greek and Roman mythologies, the traditions of the Buddhists, by the great philosophers Aristotle, Plato, and Pliny were found in the Bible, it would destroy the belief that it's the word of God forever. The Bible is set apart from other religious texts by how many people have read it. It's been published in whole and in part in over 3,500 languages. It has been studied and criticized more than any other book. The printing of the Bible on Gutenberg's press kicked off the age of printed books in the West. And today, over 6 billion copies of the Bible have been published with approximately 100 million printed every year next closest book is the Quran at 800 million copies. And I don't know if you remember that worldwide phenomenon of a book, the Harry Potter series. 
Well, it comes in at only 400 million copies published. The Bible is the only book that tells us we are God's unique creation. It's the only book that gives a continuous, unending record from the first man to now and from now to the future. It's the only book of ancient history that gives history a purpose. It is the purest form of religious literature and holds those who believe it to the highest moral standard. The Bible is the only book that has proven to convict men of sin and lead them to salvation. Despite the Bible containing 66 books written by 40 plus men over a span of nearly 1600 years, there is a unity and a theme that can only speak to divine inspiration. From Moses to the Apostle John, from Syria and Arabia, to Italy and Greece, from the desert of Sinai, the wilderness of Judea, the cave of Adullam, the prison of Rome, the island of Patmos, the palaces of Zion and Shushan, to the banks of the rivers of Babylon, men recorded the words of God. Yet despite their different languages, despite their different lifestyles and professions, these men wrote poetry, history, Theology, proverbs, parables, and allegory with such unity you can go from one book to another and believe it was written by the same person. This unity speaks to the spirit, mind, and words of the God who guided their hands. When you combine the Old Testament and then look at the combined New Testament, four themes become clear. Revelation. History devotion, and prophecy. In the Old Testament, the first five books reveal God. From Joshua to Esther, we are shown history. Job, through the Song of Solomon, gives us devotion. And prophecy comes from Isaiah to Malachi. In the New Testament, God is revealed in the Gospels. The book of Acts gives us history. The epistles teach us devotion, and prophecy comes from the book of Revelation. In the Old Testament, salvation is prepared. In the New Testament, salvation is fulfilled. The Bible is unique. It's united. And it's indestructible. Psalm 119 verses 89 through 91 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances for all are your servants. There have been many people who have attacked the word of God throughout the years. Yet they are dead and gone. But the Bible remains. The second century Greek philosopher Celsus wrote the earliest known all-out attack on Christianity. All we know of his writings today are the quotations from the response of a man of God, Origen of Alexandria. The third-century philosopher Porphyry wrote 15 books collectively called Against the Christians. In these books, he mocked Paul and attacked Jesus and the disciples. 
Ultimately, Porphyry's books were ordered to be burned in the 5th century. And again, all we know of his arguments exist in the writings of the 30 Christian leaders who defended their faith. The 4th century Roman emperor Diocletian ordered every biblical manuscript to be burned and ordered the killings of nearly 3,500 Christians in a 10-year-long war on Christianity. So many manuscripts were destroyed, and so many Christians were killed, Diocletian declared victory and erected a monument inscribed with the words Extincto Nomine Christianorum, which means the name of Christians has been extinguished. 22 years later, the First Nicene Council met and declared the Bible as the only infallible judge of truth in the world. In 1764, the French Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire made it his life's mission to discredit, mock, and diminish the importance of the Bible in modern society. At the end of his satirical commentary of the Bible, Voltaire believed no one would read the Bible again. He believed his writings were so influential, he would bring about the end of people's faith and desire to read the Bible at all. Some people have claimed he declared the Bible would be forgotten within 50 years. 58 years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society used Voltaire's house to print and store Bibles. The legend of the Bible tells the story of hostility, cruelty, and disdain. Yet despite all men's efforts throughout the ages, the same God who inspired it has preserved it. The same God who spoke his words for men to document has ensured that you can read study and know it why so you can know him thank you for listening until the next episode hold fast